Let me begin by asking you a question this morning. Put your thinking caps on here. What does uh, William Carey... Is this a real? No, it's not a real. Just a question. What does William Carey, John Wesley, Robert Murray McShane, Andrew Murray, and Jonathan Edwards all share in common? They had two eyes. No, that's not the answer. The answer is that they were all profoundly affected by the biography of a backwoods missionary who died at the age of 29 after having served four years in relative obscurity ministering to the North American Indians in eastern Pennsylvania. They read the biography of David Brainerd. And it was the biography of David Brainerd and his intense spiritual wrestling with God in prayer, sometimes lasting all night, that so profoundly influenced those great giants of the faith, these missionary movers like Carey and Wesley and so forth. As they read David Brainerd's biography, they were transformed by his prayer life. That is what those men share in common. We are in the third week of five, dealing with our core values. And just by way of review for you, we've been defining core value as as the deepest, most constant, most passionate beliefs and visible commitments that drive either an individual or an organization. We have looked at two of them together so far. We are going to pick up the third one this morning together. On your handouts, I've given them to you at the top, and I've given you a couple of blanks. That's just to see if you've been paying attention for the last two weeks. So our first core value is blank to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is what? Devotion, that's right. Devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is our determination to obey the Bible. That's right. Devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, our determination to obey the Bible. Third, our dedication to prayer. Fourth, daring to minister by faith. And fifth, developing disciples to reach the nations. These are the five aspirational core values. These are the the deepest and most constant and most passionate beliefs that we have and want to have to drive the ministries of this church into the years and decades ahead. So this morning we're going to look together at this third one, dedication to prayer. As in the others, we're not going to exhaust the topic this morning. We're going to merely introduce it and make some comments on it as we go. We will be coming back to these things over and over and over again in the years, months and years to come. But our dedication to prayer really will manifest itself in three ways. Powerful prayer, passionate prayer, and purposeful prayer. Prayer 
is the backbone of the church. Prayer is the backbone of the church. A strong and robust prayer ministry will enable the church to go forth boldly and accomplish amazing things for God. But a a prayer ministry that is flimsy or bent or twisted in some way will debilitate the ministry of the church. It will be as if the central nervous system were somehow partially shut down or obstructed. The result will be a stunted, a deformed, a sickly ministry. When prayer is conducted as God would have it conducted with the passion that God would have it infused with, the church will be very, very healthy indeed. As we begin together this morning, let's just begin by uh, forming a definition, if you will. What is prayer? Let's just begin with that as a definition. What is prayer? Again, much that could be said, but there is a definition that was penned 300 years ago that I like, and so I'm going to use that one. It was penned in 1662 by John Bunyan. John Bunyan, as you'll undoubtedly recall, is the author of that book, Pilgrim's Progress. And so John Bunyan penned the following definition of prayer. Let me read it for you. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. For such things as God has promised or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission in faith to the will of God. Let me read it to you again. That is a powerful definition. Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ, in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit, for such things as God has promised, or according to his word, for the good of the church, with submission in faith to the will of God. Now that we know what prayer is, let's explore our commitment together here to it. First, again, you can look at your notes. Knowing that without faith it is impossible to please God, the ministry of Foothill Bible Church is dedicated to powerful Prayer, as a church family beginning with individuals who pray faithfully. Powerful prayer that begins with individuals who pray faithfully. Our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of prayer. He was a man of serious prayer, lengthy prayer, heartfelt prayer. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, speaking of his prayer life, it says, And early in the morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Jesus got up before the sun to go out and pray. 
We also know that he prayed for long periods of time. It says over in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. So Jesus not only got up early to pray, he prayed long. He was a man given to prayer. Jesus also taught about prayer. In several places where he did so, he did it in the form of parables. Two of them I want to look at with you this morning. Open your Bibles to Luke 11. We're going to look briefly at Luke 11 and then Luke 18. Parables of persistence. Parables of persistence. As Jesus taught about prayer, one of the aspects of prayer that he emphasized was the need for faithfulness and persistence in prayer. He modeled it himself, getting up early and praying long. He also taught about it. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. It was very common at that time for a, a rabbi to teach his disciples a, a certain form of prayer. And so this was, a, this was a normal request that they had of him. And they said, Lord, teach us. John the Baptist has taught his disciples. Teach us how to pray. And he said to them, verse 2, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. It's a, profound, a very profound prayer. There's much that we could say about that. But that's not the point that we want to look at this morning. What we want to look at is the parable that follows the giving of this prayer. He said to them, Suppose one of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks it shall be opened. Interesting parable that he gives here. He talks about this man who is in bed with his children. Not the way we would think of four-bedroom homes and the kids are off tucked away in one room and where in another. That's not the case at all. They're sleeping in a common room. They're kind of laying around the floor together on cots. And so to get up to light a light and to go to the door would necessitate the waking up of the whole family. And the, the father's not willing to do that. He says, go away. I'm not going to get up and give you a loaf of bread. It's Everybody's asleep. This is a friend, right? Isn't that what it says? Friend, lend me three loaves. Not a chance. 
I'm asleep. But verse 8, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, yet because of his persistence, he gets up and gives him whatever he needs. You see that? That word persistence, we could translate that as shamelessness. In fact, in the margin of your Bible, it may give you that as an alternate translation of that Greek word. The man banging on the door was shameless. What does that mean? It means he was not afraid to act like a fool. He was not afraid to stand there after dark when everyone's asleep and continue to bang on the man's door who had told him, I'm not going to give you anything. Go away. And he continues to stand there like a fool, banging on the door and banging on the door and saying, please help me, I need some bread. He's persistent in his begging. And Jesus says, not because he's a friend, but because he's a fool, the owner of the house will get up and give him what he needs. Right? So what's the point of the parable? God is more than our friend. God is more inclined to us than our neighbor. God is not asleep with his children and unwilling to get up and give us what we need. And so if this man in the parable will get his bread because of his insistent knocking, his willingness to act like a fool, to continue to ask when the answer has been given no, then how much more will God give to, the children, to his children who will demonstrate persistence? That's the point. The point of the parable is you must persist. You must persist in prayer. Lord, teach us to pray as, as John also taught his disciples. Fine, I will teach you to pray. But it is not the words at your mouth that is the issue. It is the persistence of your heart. Will you come back over and over and over again and pray? Go over to uh, Luke chapter 18. This is a big issue. Jesus gives two parables teaching on this issue. This is important. Verse eight, chapter 18, verse 1, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Why would he need to show them a parable that they need to pray at all times and not lose heart? Because his disciples were just like you and I, and we tend to do what when we pray? You, that's right, we lose heart. Right? We ask once, we ask twice, we ask three times, and then we move on. Jesus says we are pray at all times, not lose heart. Here's the parable. Saying, there was a certain, in a certain city a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. And there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, lest by continually coming she wear me out. Okay? I mean, this lady is driving me crazy is what he's saying. And, and I'll do anything to get her out of my hair. So if, that's, if justice is what she wants, justice is what she'll get. Just go away and leave me alone. 
And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, shall not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The contrast is between the unrighteous judge who has no intention of giving this widow anything that she needs, but because of her persistence and faithful prayer coming over and over and over again, he finally relents and gives her what she wants. God, who is not an unrighteous judge, who wants to give us what we need, will he not give it to us if we will just but come and ask The hook is on the end of it, though, in verse 8. But will he find faith on the earth? The question is, is God will answer, but will he find people who are willing to keep asking? What kind of persistent faith do we really have? Prayer requires personal commitment. Prayer requires personal commitment. It begins in the will. It begins with a deep down inside with a with a commitment to, to pray regardless of the cost of prayer. Regardless of the sacrifices that need to be made in order to find time to pray. Recently, a couple of guys from this church climbed Mount Whitney. They climbed all the way up and back in one day. And they told me, and I think I got this number right, that there are 97 switchbacks in the approach to Mount Whitney. That's 97 times you cut back on yourself in order to gain altitude to get up to the summit of this mountain. Now, why anybody in their right mind, Steve, would do that, I have no idea. Particularly somebody who's old. But in any case... I've got that right. 90, was that right? 97 switchbacks. I've been thinking about that ever since. That's 97 separate decisions. I will do this one, and then I will do the next one, and then I will do the next one. That's 97 times to poop out on the way to the top of Mount Whitney, right? And so what does it take to climb to the top? It takes a commitment to over and over and over again go up each and every one of those switchbacks. And that, I think, relates nicely to prayer because what does it take to be faithful and persistent in prayer? It's a re- over and over and over again require our commitment that you're going to do what it takes. It's not that you say, well, I'm committed to prayer and so I'm going to pray. Yeah, you begin there. But then every night when you go to bed, you say, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to pray. I'm going to make that commitment and I'm going to let it come to pass. And what I'm not going to do is reach over and hit the snooze button, right? Persistence, faithfulness. Powerful prayer as a church family begins with individuals who pray faithfully. The ministry of Foothill Bible Church is dependent upon the prayer support of each and every one of us. If we are not praying privately, then it doesn't matter what we come to do, come together to do on the first Sunday evening of the month. We are not a praying church. 
We may get together and we may get a pretty good crowd on that first Sunday of the month. But if we are not individually committed to a ministry of prayer and practicing, and not just committed up here, right, but committed on the snooze button, unless we are privately practicing prayer, then we're not a praying church. We're committed to individuals who pray faithfully. Secondly, knowing that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, the ministry of FBC is dedicated to passionate prayer. As a church, demonstrating our need for God's power and dependence upon His provision. Passionate prayer. Passionate prayer is when we throw ourselves at the feet of God and we beg Him for His help. That's what passionate prayer is. Passionate prayer requires us to have no other place to go. People do not pray passionately when they do not feel deeply about something. Our passions are inflamed by that which affects us personally. Let me give you an example. Go with me over to Acts chapter 4. And let's look at an example of passionate prayer. Verse 23. Context here in Acts 4, of course, is that Peter and John are on their way into the temple and there's a man who's been lame and they heal him and that gathers a great crowd and they begin to preach and the authorities come and they arrest them and they question them and so forth. And then verse 21, after they're done with that, says when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they could punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. The man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So they, they get Peter and John together and they pound on him for a while and they, they'd love to beat him within an inch of their life, but they're afraid at the moment to do it because the crowds have, have seen and witnessed a notable miracle. But they threaten them, and don't miss that, verse 21. They threaten them. They say, if this happens again, we will take serious action. So how do Peter and John respond? Okay? This is the fascinating part. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. They came and they gave a report and they said, you know what? The authorities have gathered us together and they have said to us that if we do this again, they're going to beat us within an inch of our lives. And beyond that, we could very well end up dead. So maybe we ought to cool it a little bit with the confrontational preaching. You know, the idea of standing in the temple and saying to the authorities, you are the ones who crucified God's Messiah. Maybe that's not the right tact we ought to take. Verse 24. But when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who have made the heaven and the earth and all that is in them. They begin with an acknowledgement of sovereignty. And who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, have said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They reached back into the scriptures, pulling forward Psalm 2. A messianic psalm. 
For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and protect us so that we don't get hurt. No, wait a minute. That's not what it said, is it? And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. They got the spirit of boldness. This is a passionate prayer. These are people who have now thrown themselves so far out onto the sovereignty of God, they have no choice but to turn to Him, remind Him of what He had said in His own scriptures, beseech Him as the God, the sovereign one over all of creation, beseech Him to give them the boldness they need to carry forth the task He's given them to do. That is passionate prayer. That's not mumbling a few things and then, in Jesus' name, amen, and going on home. Okay, they are hanging way out on the end of the limb here and they are sawing it off behind themselves. This is what generates passionate prayer. It's the need for God. It's the acknowledgement of your dependence upon God. It's a calling out to God because there is no one else who can help you. Apostle Paul sensed the need for passionate prayer on his behalf. Go with me over to Ephesians chapter 6, where he writes in that letter to the Ephesian church, which was circulated to other churches in Asia Minor. Paul is enlisting, enlisting prayer support. Ephesians 6, verse 18. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make, make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. That in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Wait a minute, I thought this was the Apostle Paul. This is the guy who's afraid of nobody, right? This is the one who says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? This is the guy, come on, onward, let's go, take the fort. And he says, please, pray for me. I beseech you, pray persistently with me and for me. Don't give up. Keep going before the throne and, and beseeching, storming heaven on my behalf. Why? So that I might be bold enough to open my mouth and speak. Because if you don't, I will fail. I will fail. If we don't think we need God's help, then our prayer life is sporadic. It's flat. It's unemotional. It's passionless. It's only when we recognize how big God is, how little we are, and how much we need Him 
that we then begin to really grab a hold. Jacob grabbed the angel, said, I will not let go unless you bless me. I won't let go. I keep coming back and coming back, coming back. Passionate prayer. This little book here, it's called The Valley of Vision. This happens to be a leather-bound edition, but available in paperback as well. It's a series of Puritan prayers. Listen to a passionate prayer penned a few hundred years ago. Sovereign God, your cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to your name is my sole desire. I adore you that you are God and long that others would know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise you and that you might have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to you for your dear name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But you can accomplish great things. The cause is yours. It is to your glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as you will. Do with me what you will. But, oh, promote your cause. Let your kingdom come. Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. Do bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp from multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for you to the utmost of my strength spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is for your cause and kingdom I long and not my own. Oh, answer my request. That's passion and prayer for the things of God. We are committed. We are committed to passionate prayer. Passionate prayer as a church demonstrating our need for God's power and our dependence upon His provision. People who have everything they need, everything they want, don't need to pray. Third, <clears throat> knowing that God says we can ask anything in His name, Foothill Bible Church is dedicated to purposeful prayer that ignites our love for one another and our devotion to God's kingdom work. I've been a believer now almost 30 years. And I've been in a lot of prayer meetings over those years. And I have to say that most prayer meetings that I attend are pretty unsatisfying. Pretty unsatisfying because... They seem to have little resemblance to the prayers of the New Testament as I read it. Oh, there are snippets that come here and there, but all too often, and let us be honest with ourselves, all too often, our prayer meetings sound more like what one person called an organ recital than biblical prayer. There is a place to pray for those who are sick, those who are hurting, for sure. 
but it should be a small piece of what occupies our prayers, at least if the New Testament is any kind of a model of prayer for us. Beloved, it's when we pray purposefully in line with New Testament priorities. Then our love for one another will be ignited. Then our passion for God's kingdom will be inflamed. Rather than take you to one specific passage, I have a list of 18 passages and there's no way we're going to look at them all. We just went through the New Testament and just began to write down passages that from the Apostle Paul's prayer life. That which he prayed and that which he asked others to pray on his behalf. Let's just look at a few of them. Go with me to Romans 1. Oh, if the New Testament could shape our prayer life. Romans 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, and that you may be established." That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. What is he praying? He's beginning with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that their faith is not some hidden reality, but it's broadcast throughout the world. Throughout the whole world, it says, your faith is being proclaimed. I thank God that your Christianity is on display, not hidden. And beyond that, I desire to come to you, to minister together with you, and to have you minister to me. Chapter 10, verse 1. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Who is he praying for? He is praying for the Jewish nation. He is longing to God. He says, my desire, my prayer for them is that God will save them. Chapter 15. Verse 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he praying? He's praying for the unity of the church. The unity of the church. Here in this letter, what are his prayer requests? They are thanksgiving for a gospel message that is so strongly proclaimed through the Roman believers that the whole world has heard about it. It is a request to come and to minister and to be ministered to. It is for the salvation of the lost. It is for the unity of the church. These are big and powerful 
New Testament themes. Go with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He does pray for those who need comfort. Paul is not an unfeeling, uncaring theologian. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. May God bring comfort to you in the midst of your affliction so that you may turn and comfort others. You are to be a thoroughfare of comfort, not a cul-de-sac. God will give that you might give. We won't look at them, but the prayer of Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21 powerful statements where Paul prays there that they would first recognize who they are in Jesus Christ and then in Ephesians 3 that they might live according to the reality of who they are in Christ. How about Philippians 1? We'll take a look at that one. Philippians 1. Beginning in verse 9. And this I pray, he says, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, that your love for one another might increase that your holiness might increase. Be blameless. Christ returns. Take you home. Colossians 4. Beginning in verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned in order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Pray for me, he says. Pray that God would open up a door of evangelistic opportunity. Pray that when it opens that I can speak in the way that I ought to and make the gospel known. First Timothy 2. Beginning in verse 1. First Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties, prayers, 
Petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Pray for those in authority and leadership over you, the governmental leaders, and pray what for them? Pray for their salvation, he says. Beseech God, not that they would make wise policy decisions so that your tax rate goes down or that your comfort index increases, but pray for them that God would touch their heart and draw them unto himself and save them. Oh, that our prayer meetings could begin to Imitate this kind of prayer priority. Beloved, the only way this happens is to become saturated with the Word of God. To become so identified with God's will and purpose as revealed in the New Testament that it fills your mind and your heart and when you open your mouth to pray, that's what comes out. Beloved, what we pray reflects the priorities of our lives. If our prayers are earthly, meaning devoted primarily to health, prosperity, and happiness, then our priorities are earthly. But the Bible says we are heavenly citizens. We are looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Oh, if we could ever begin to pray like this. This is the way David Brainerd prayed. In the biography of his life that Jonathan Edwards wrote, as Brainerd lay dying in his living room, has inflamed many, many people to great missionary endeavor. May our prayer life reflect these kind of priorities. Close your eyes and pray with me, please. O God, our Father, we are men and women with feet of clay, living here in a thin slice of space and time, constantly bombarded in every direction that our senses are in overload most of the time. Lord God, Seldom do we find time to get away where it's quiet. Seldom do we spend significant blocks of time alone with you and your word. We have the radio going in one ear or the television or just the hustle and bustle of life. 
And so, Lord God, we confess that we frequently live with our eyes on the earth and not on glory. We confess, our Father, that frequently those things that occupy the majority of our thinking and the majority of our passions are those things of the earth, transient, passing. And the things of the eternal get little or no attention. Our Father, we confess that we do not pray as we should. We confess, our Father, that our prayer life is sporadic at best. That our intentions, although good as they are voiced, seldom are worked out in the way that we would want them to be. Lord God, we confess that our prayer priorities all too frequently have little to do with the New Testament and much to do with our own comfort. Our Father, forgive us for such faithlessness. Forgive us for such sinfulness. Forgive us, our Father, for placing a priority on our own comfort above your glory. And move in our hearts, Lord, to change us. Our Father, let our attention be focused on the eternal. Let the prayers of the New Testament so shape our thinking in this area that when we open our mouths to pray, what comes out is a longing for your kingdom glory a humble submission to your sovereign will, a bleeding passion for the lost to see them come to faith in Jesus Christ, a desire to live life in such a way that we consciously sense our need for you at all times. Lord God, may our prayer life be reflective of the reality of a spiritual life lived for Christ. Lord God, work in us. Work in us individually as people, men and women, boys and girls. Work in us to change us. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And work in and through this fellowship. For your name's sake and yours alone, may you be pleased to accomplish great things. And we give you this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. I have ended a little bit early intentionally this morning.